Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. Today, our 2019 year-end special with On the Ground contributors Professor Gerald Horn, Chantel James, and Lydia Curtis weighing in with their top stories from the right to affordable housing in D.C., to the movement for black lives, to the imperialist posture of the United States on the world stage. Even with the U.S. fight, even with the U.S. fight, you will never win this fight, you will never win this fight. You can beg and you can try, you can beg and you can try, in the end your crew's alive, in the end your crew's alive. And we have a special interview with Roxanne Johnson, mother of Jamal Bird, who died in the custody of the D.C. Department of Corrections just seven hours after being arrested. She still needs answers from the district. Black people have always had to be conscious of the fact that we are always under attack in this country. And that didn't just start with me. It didn't start with, you know, my mom has been going on for 400 plus years. So I'm very conscious of that. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And before we get to our headlines, let me say at the outset that we are in a special one-week year-end fund drive for WPFW. Our drive is to raise money to keep our Pacifica radio station broadcasting loud, proud, and strong here in the nation's capital in these times when we cannot rely on corporate media to give us the truth and information and clarity we need. I'm looking for 10 new or renewing members at $120 or just $10 a month, 202-588-9739, or pledge online at wpfwfm.org. We need to be able to keep bringing unbought, unbossed, unvarnished truth and information to the airways. 202-588-9739 or pledge online at wpfwfm.org. If you do year-end giving, if you're looking for a good charity, a good not-for-profit to make those tax-deductible donations, make WPFW part of the Pacifica Radio Network, the recipient of your generosity. 202-588-9739 or WPFW.org. Now, all through the House and Senate, not even a mouse is stirring while Congress is on recess. But the news rolls on, even though the House of Representatives voted last week to impeach President Trump. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi still has not sent the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell says receipt of the articles is required in order for the process to proceed. Progressive pundits are expressing puzzlement over Pelosi's requirement that the Senate conduct a lengthy trial with documents and witnesses supplied from the White House versus conducting a speedy process which is expected to eventually end an acquittal anyway. Meanwhile, the stalemate has prompted a debate about whether, with the articles not sent to the Senate, if Trump has actually been impeached. More writers are weighing in on the rather thin gruel of the impeachment and on all the additional articles of impeachment that could have been. Mehdi Hassan, writing in The Intercept, for example, included the deaths of six migrant children in federal custody in the past 12 months, separating thousands of children from their parents, and repeated violations of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution that forbids the president from running a side business, especially one that includes income from a foreign state. And then there's the support for the genocidal war in Yemen, 
or airstrikes on Syria without congressional approval. Speaking of Syria, a top Syrian official said Tuesday that the U.S. has, quote, absolutely no right to occupy or plunder his nation's oil fields. Butena Shaban, political and media advisor to President Bashar al-Assad, told NBC News that Trump is talking about stealing Syria's oil. He added, quote, our land should be totally and completely liberated from foreign occupiers, whether they are terrorists or the Turks or the Americans, end quote. In October, Trump announced that U.S. troops would be dispatched to quote-unquote secure Syria's oil, a plan critics decried as a flagrant violation of international law and a war crime. Since then, the Pentagon has issued threats about any military forces approaching U.S. soldiers in their illegal occupation. In other U.S. international news, Bolivian President Evo Morales said in an interview that he is absolutely convinced that the United States orchestrated the military coup that removed him from power last month with the goal of exploiting Bolivia's enormous lithium reserves. Morales told Agence France Press that the U.S. had retaliated against him for pursuing lithium partnerships with China and Russia over Washington. He said, quote, Transnational companies are behind the coup, the United States too, because of the lithium issue. We as a state have begun industrializing lithium. As a small country of 10 million inhabitants, we were soon going to set the price of lithium. They know we have the greatest lithium reserves in the world. End quote. Morales has also accused the U.S. dominated Organization of American States of deliberately misleading the public about the results of the November presidential election. And finally, starting today, Friday, December 27th, China, Russia, and Iran will hold joint naval drills in the Gulf of Oman. A Chinese defense ministry spokesman said the drills would, quote, deepen exchange and cooperation between the navies of the three countries, end quote. The drills come as Washington has ratcheted up sanctions and rhetoric against Iran. Those crippling economic sanctions were supposed to be lifted under the so-called Iran nuclear deal that the Trump administration has refused to honor. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn, Chantel James, and Lydia Curtis join me for the top stories of 2019. Stay with us. Rock to the beat, you can feel it in your feet. Steady as you go, cause you know you gotta flow. Gotta stay strong, you as solid as a rock. No matter how hard it gets, you can't stop. Rock to the beat, you can feel it in your feet. Steady as you go, cause you know you gotta flow. Gotta stay strong, you as solid as a rock. No matter how hard it gets, you can't stop. This is dedicated to the queen of soul. Her voice reigns supreme and her style is so cold. This is dedicated to my grandmother. Blessed in love, there will never be another. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm joined by On the Ground contributors Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Professor Gerald Horn. And we're going to break down for you the top stories of 2019. I have to admit, my three top stories of the year are the quickening pace of climate change, the dangers to freedom of the press and journalists worldwide, and also the just blatant lawlessness of the U.S. in terms of interventions and violating international law around the world. But uh, I want to hear from our contributors. And so Lydia, Lydia Curtis, uh, has been covering several stories for us this year. And most recently, the effort by public housing residents to perhaps purchase their buildings because they are facing the possibility of their units 
of losing their units um, uh, under renovations. And in the past, buildings have been renovated and tenants have not been allowed to move back in or the buildings have not been rebuilt for low-income residents. So, Lydia, why don't you talk about this important story for 2019? Thank you. This story is close to my heart because... The Garfield residents live in my ward, Ward 1. Uh, I live walking distance from them. And because they were one of 14 other buildings that were put on what, what we are calling a hit list in July of 2019 that the city is innocuously calling the transformative plan uh, the, or the transformation plan. And what they're calling for is for these buildings to be demolished and replaced with new buildings. And like you said, usually the replacement is not one for one, and usually the people who live there have to live somewhere else for about three years until their building is finished, and then some of them can come back. And then there's so much difficulty and red tape with them coming back, and sometimes even though they're promised that, you know, you won't have to qualify, sometimes they have to qualify because there's so many different jurisdictions. There might be federal, there may be local, whatever. And so these uh, residents said, no, we're going to push back against that. So they organized. They have a number of local organizations that are supporting them. Uh, they have legal representation. And they, uh, they had a press conference about a month ago, and uh, they are demanding that their TOPA rights, Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, rights. They want to be able to purchase their building or have the, the right of first refusal. So not only do they want the right of first refusal, uh, they want the building to go up. There's plenty of land where their property is. They want the building to be built first, and then they will move out of their properly repaired units into their new units. And so okay. I, that's amazing for me because they, um, they're, making, they're making top demands. They're not mm -hmm. making any compromises. And so that was a, a very important story. I'm honored to cover that story because these are, are people who are in, in advanced age and also people who have some, you know, physical disabilities who are just, you know, they're fighting and they're mm. demanding to be treated like human beings. Wow. Yeah, so that's really been uh, an important story. And I think when we first ran the story, I think, Gerald, you mentioned that this reminded you of the Thatcher model in England and that there could be some possible pitfalls. Well, yes. As you know, in England, under conservative Tory Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, there was concerted effort to privatize public housing. But as it turned out, the folks who were able supposedly to buy their units were not able to keep their units because they did not have the income to keep up with maintenance fees and all of the rest, not to mention the mortgage. And so eventually many of them wound up homeless. Hmm. Yeah, and, I, and I, I, I wonder what the differences are because right now this is occurring as Communities all over the country are experiencing what we refer to as gentrification. And previously, African-American neighborhoods, often low-income neighborhoods, are being displaced by wealthier, usually whiter populations. And so I wonder if, 
our situation here might be a little bit different. And we're, t- we're talking about people trying to avoid homelessness right now. In, t- in terms of strategy with the, with the Garfield people, you know, I want the public to understand that, they, that right now they're not going to do a rent strike, but they still have, they're still going to be before the court um, using other methods to uh, exercise their rights. Okay, well, I've been speaking with Lydia Curtis, on-the-ground contributor, about this important issue of housing, housing as a right, and the effort of D.C. residents at Garfield Terrace to purchase their homes. Thank you for contributing to today's year-end review, Lydia. Thank you. My pleasure. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Doing our year-end review with on-the-ground contributors Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Professor Gerald Horn. And next up, uh, Chantel James covered several stories uh, throughout the year. And Chantel, what are your top three stories for 2019? The first of my top three stories is an ongoing story with different threads that link related to the Answer Coalition's protests that they've been having in D.C. against the U.S. intervention in both Bolivia and Venezuela. Those were both major events of 2019 with the U.S. interfering in the democratic process in those countries. And we saw a lot of local interest with people who live here reaching out to show solidarity with the people in those countries and their struggles and trying to really get the message across that those actions of the U.S. government are not in their name. Here is a clip from that November 16th rally you covered, Chantel, featuring Sean Blackman from the Answer Coalition, local Bolivian activists, and also the crowd. This is international solidarity in action. And see, the only way that we're going to be able to stop the racist right-wing coup in Bolivia, the only way we're going to stop U.S. imperialism in Latin America and wherever it rears its ugly head on this earth is with unity and togetherness. Now ain't that right? Yeah, so that was the rally uh, in support of Bolivia and Evo Morales when they were saying Evo C. They're talking about Evo Morales out in front of the White House on November 16th. And that was organized by the Answer Coalition, but their organizations like Popular Resistance, Code Pink, Black Alliance for Peace, Veterans for Peace, who have been very active around actions in D.C. And uh, they, they form a, a very strong cadre of activism uh, throughout this year. So what's next, Chantel? The other story that I wanted to highlight was the victory in October that Black Lives Matter and the ACLU won when they were able to withdraw their case against MPD, who had been taking three years from the passage of the NEAR Act to finally release their stop and frisk data so that we could begin to understand just exactly who 
is being targeted by the police for those kinds of actions. And the third story that I wanted to highlight for this year is the emergence of the Don't Mute DC movement, which came about as a hashtag and a street movement. It was sparked when the residents of a luxury building called the Shea in Shaw filed a noise ordinance against a Metro PCS on Florida Avenue that's been playing go-go music for the people of the neighborhood for 27 years. And that became kind of a symbol of some of the ways that the local indigenous culture to D.C. is under threat due to gentrification and kind of these changing demographics of the city that you guys have been talking about with some of Lydia's coverage. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting, I think, about the Don't Mute D.C. movement is that it has also spread into dealing with other issues around, for example, the viability of the only hospital serving residents across the river in Southeast D.C., and they have expanded the range of what Don't Mute DC is, is about to, to be a human rights cry for the native Washingtonians, longtime residents, particularly the African American population here in DC. So that to mute that population is not just about the music, but about people's health, about people's housing, about people's right to not live in food deserts, and just a, a variety of topics related to human rights in the city. So I know that that's something that I've been really interested in, and I'm glad that we were able to cover it. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's right. And what I think is also very interesting is the way that we're seeing go-go music, which has been around for decades, kind of emerging now as this battle cry and this anthem and the soundtrack to some of the social struggles that are going on in D.C. That's something that I think is really interesting that's coming out of 2019. Okay. Well, again, uh, I've been speaking to Chantel James, on the ground contributor, about her top stories of 2019. Thank you, Chantel. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and we're in our year-end review for 2019. And up next is Professor Gerald Horn, and we speak to Gerald almost every week about international news and global events that are impacting us here in the United States and just all around the world. And so, Gerald, as we look to 2019 and the many stories that we've covered, what are your top three for the year? Well, first of all, let's start in Latin America. I think in Venezuela, it's the coup that did not happen at the beginning of 2019. The mainstream press was all but predicting that Nicolas Maduro, the president in Caracas, was on his way out. But in December 2019, he's still there. On the other hand, in Bolivia, you have the so-called lithium coup, that is to say President Evo Morales was chased out of office by the military, not least because he was trying to negotiate favorable terms for his people in terms of lithium, uh, which is an element that's essential to this uh, future uh, state.
stage of battery production, in which the United States is going to play a major part. On the other hand, in Ecuador and Chile, you had mass protests that were indicative of mass protests breaking out all over the world. And moving to Africa, uh, the overthrow and the dislodging of President al-Bashir in Sudan as a result of people power, I thought, was a very significant story. Perhaps the most significant story in the long term, in the long run, was the proclamation of the African Continental Free Trade Area, which unites uh, four dozen plus African countries in a single market of three trillion plus that will inevitably be dominated by Nigeria and South Africa. Uh, speaking of South Africa, I think the xenophobic uh, protests that broke out in that country were very significant, particularly protests that were targeting Nigerians, uh, which caused uh, President Ramaphosa to apologize uh, formally uh, to Nigeria, not least because South African interests in Nigeria in turn were being attacked. In terms of climate change, which I know is one of your issues that you pointed out, uh, Africa continues to be victimized by climate change, although you may not be able to say that there is a one-to-one relationship between this enormous cyclone that disrupted Southern Africa some months ago, leading to two million being displaced, and the uh, question of climate change. Certainly, I think it would be foolish and folly to suggest that climate change has nothing to do with that particular issue, and with regard to religious zealotry, which is not just an African phenomenon, but certainly has an African component, the continued religious zealotry that's erupting in Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, which has led directly, I'm afraid to say, of French military intervention, uh, continues to percolate and, of course, uh, has knock-on effects uh, due south in Nigeria with the continued march of Boko Haram. Now, just finally, I think that with regard to Europe, the Brexit continues to be a major question with Boris Johnson uh, being returned to office for another term as prime minister. But I think in the long term, the continued close relations between France and Russia have to be watched very carefully. Recall that before the G7 meeting uh, in the late spring of 2019, President Putin had a sit-down with President Macron of France, and I think that that relationship will continue to flourish, not least because both countries have contradictions with the United States of America. And speaking of contradictions with the United States of America, we'd be remiss if we failed to acknowledge the rise and rise of the People's Republic of China, uh, which is signaled on this side of the Pacific by the continuing trade war, which supposedly has come to a kind of pause But I think that that's just the process of both countries reloading and gearing up for a final and ultimate showdown sometime in the 21st century. You know, what I'm when I hear about the trade war, I I guess I I understand the kind of machinations of that somewhat. But I guess I'm more wary of the gearing up by this country for a hot war when they make the statement that the priority for the u.s military is what major power confrontation i don't know if that's the right kind of word um it's set in motion um uh 
it's done a lot to set in motion the new Cold War. Uh, it's set in motion a lot of the new McCarthyism that not only is about Russia, but it's all about it's about China. We have several new pieces of legislation passed recently or working their way through Congress that attempt to take away the sovereignty of China over their own territory. And that just seems to add fuel to the fire, not in just in terms of a trade war, but building up of, of military animosity. Well, I think you have a point, and certainly the fact that the United States will be moving to establish a so-called space force, uh, which raises the specter of Star Wars for real, as opposed to on the silver screen, is something that should concern us all. Uh, likewise, it's remarkable that the United States is making quite a to-do and clamor about imagined and alleged persecution of Muslims in China, but has nothing to say, quite literally, about a similar phenomenon taking place in India, not least because India is seen as a partner and a comrade of the United States in its attempt to corral China, to bring China to heel. And similarly, with regard to the protests that have erupted in Hong Kong, Congress has moved quite aggressively to support those protests, up to and including Senator Ted Cruz, of Texas joining the protests in the streets of Hong Kong, accompanied, uh, perhaps not the same day, but in the uh, longer sense of things, uh, by Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who plans to run for president in 2024. So I think it's important for us to follow these events because Senators Hawley and Cruz feel that they are getting momentum for their demonic domestic priorities by making global alliances. And I dare say that we'll be missing the boat if we fail to emulate them. Well, I know that we will continue to follow these issues. Chantel, I don't know if you wanted to jump in and add anything in terms of your coverage of the protests here in D.C. in re reaction to the U.S. involvement in the attempted coup in Venezuela and the, the support of the, uh, the coup mongers in Bolivia? Um, I don't think I would have anything to really add except that um, I do think in D.C. we have the added advantage, of course, of being positioned, you know, right in the heart of the empire. And we did have, we did have, several activists who they, who actually camped out in the Venezuelan embassy. I think that was an important event that happened this year. And um, just the fact that a lot of people in D.C. are connecting their struggles to the wider struggles of people around the world who are trying to defend against U.S. imperialism. And, um, yeah, just those kinds of connections that people are making in the ways that they're getting out into the streets in grassroots ways to show that. Yes, and speaking of the Embassy Protectors, they have a website, defendembassyprotectors.org, and the latest is that when they went to a discovery hearing, the judge denied their right to review certain evidence, and so they, they have a blog on their website saying that they're being denied their right to a fair trial, and they are 
all facing federal charges punishable by up to a year in prison, $100,000 fine each and restitution to the government for police time and damages. So the four are Kevin Zeese, uh, Margaret Flowers, MD, uh, David Paul, and Adrian Pine. And uh, these are the four people who were arrested. And in, a, in addition to the their campaign and also to raise funds for their defense, uh, On the Ground has mounted a petition at change.org to for the D.C. City Council to hold a hearing about the actions of the MPD, that's the Metropolitan Police Department at the embassy, and many of us who attended the rallies at the embassy were physically assaulted, verbally assaulted, and uh, rather than people who assaulted us being held accountable, we have now people who were legally in the embassy legally at the invitation of the Venezuela government being arrested and now facing trial for their actions to occupy the embassy. So this is definitely an ongoing story, and I'm glad that we were able to cover it on on the ground. So I want to thank my contributors and my guests, Professor Gerald Horn, Lydia Curtis, and Chantel James. Thank you all for your contributions throughout the year and for participating in our year in review. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's call it what it is. It's a feeling inside that you just can't shake, that you just can't hide. Gotta get there to it, then you can let go. When you wanna rock on, here's what you must know. When your head is not clear, cause things get heavy. Rock beats, rock rhymes, rock floors like rock steady. Let's rock. Can't stop. Let's rock. Don't stop. Rock to the beat, you can feel it in your feet. In early December 2019, On the Ground covered a press conference about the death of 35-year-old Jamal Byrd in the custody of the D.C. Department of Corrections after police said he was arrested on suspicion of selling drugs. But to this date, Byrd's mother has still not received any official information about how her son died. I sat down with her Thursday at her home in Bowie, Maryland. I'm here with Roxanne Johnson, a mother of Jamal Byrd, who died in the custody of the D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department this fall. And I want to first say we're so sorry for your loss, mm -hmm. and thank you for taking the time to yeah. talk to us. You know, it's the day after Christmas, and I see you have all these wonderful things you have ready to take to, you know, feed people who need a meal, who are less fortunate. And that's something that Jamal helped you with last year. Yeah. So when we first heard about the case of Jamal, we ran sound from the news conference, mm -hmm. press conference that you held. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the police department or the corrections department really hadn't told you what happened to your son. And that was your main plea at that time. You want to know what happened to your son. Mm -hmm. Have they followed up with you since then to say anything to you? No, they have not. I still haven't heard anything officially from anybody from the Metropolitan Police Department or the D.C. Department of Corrections to, to this point today, December the 26th. Um, it's been like three months ago my son was pronounced dead on October the 1st. Uh, he was in the custody of D.C. Department of Corrections. He was um, arrested for suspicion of selling marijuana, which in D.C. marijuana is 
legal. Number one. Number two, most people get citations, not um, arrested for that um, type of offense. I was contacted at 3 o'clock in the morning, um, and I still wake up around that time, mm-hmm. about 3 o'clock in the morning, um, and asked a bunch of questions about my son. And then they hung up the phone and called back to tell me that my son had died over the phone. That's how I heard. Um, since then, I have not been able to get any information, like I said, from the B- D.C. Department of Corrections nor the Metropolitan Police Department mm-hmm. about what happened in that situation. I know because I'm in D.C. and the way they have created the law, it's almost legal to, you can smoke pot in your house, you know, your marijuana in your house, you can grow it in your house, but I don't know, I think they still, what you said, they give a citation if they catch you selling it? Or out, out smoke, smoking it outside or or. To me, the whole idea of a suspicion of selling something, what does that mean? I don't even understand what that means. Okay. Um, I unofficially heard from a metropolitan police detective who told me that a jump out uh, unit, which is illegal, accosted my son and mm. for suspicion of selling marijuana. Right. Yeah. Is this what was said in that three o'clock call? The three o'clock call was, I'm like, what is going on? I mean, there's, this is a Metropolitan Police um, detective. He didn't tell me his name, but he said, your son um, was found unresponsive at 10.59 p.m. So, and that would have been September the 30th and expired October the 1st. And I was like, what happened to him? Did he kill himself? What happened? Because mm. I'm like, why is, you know, what is going on? He, When I saw him last, he was absolutely healthy. Mm. So the, the police detective tells me, well, I don't know. We don't know what happened. We have to wait, wait for the report to come back for that. And that's the last that I've heard from these people. So did yeah. you even know he was arrested? I did not know he was arrested. Oh, he had wow. been arrested so for seven is- hours and, you know, no phone call, anything. The first contact I get is this to tell him, tell me that he had expired. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so this was that one call, then he hung up, and then he yeah, called back call again. back. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I guess he had you listed as a next contact. Yeah. They, they had some record of who to call, even to let them know that to let you know that he had been arrested or taken right. into custody right. so so tell us about jamal i i know you know mm. we ran the picture of him and two children i don't mm. know if they were his children mm. but tell us about him and mm. his his family so life. um so i i was blessed i have two children a daughter 37 and jamal 35 and he was just a you know wonderful son you know he's 35 35 i think i've seen it say 33 but he's 35 Mm -hmm. and he was just a wonderful son grew up went to school partly in dc then we moved to laurel maryland where he completed um his education played boys and girls club football basketball just a normal kid right Mm -hmm. you know very loving very loyal very kind anybody who knew him knew that he would help anybody with anything right Mm -hmm. you know we just the way that uh i tried to raise them as to be able to not just think about themselves but to think about their community around them so you know from an early age we always you know always had something where they would volunteer would go show them how to help mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. and when he became adult he definitely was one of those kind of people who would help anybody in right. any situation mm-hmm. now the other side of, of Jamal was that um, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 
um, in his How late twenties. In his late twenties, and so he would be very, very depressed and then very, very manic, and um, at least w- was um, hospitalized for a week for one manic episode. But since he got from that hospitalization, I think he got more serious about his mental health, and so did not have as many issues with the mental health. But I'm not so sure that like when he was confronted with the police that something didn't happen you know that caused him to have some kind of mental health issues because me being a mental health uh, therapist I know that people who are in contact with police or law enforcement who have mental health issues are five times more likely to have a negative um, experience and end up (laughs) dead just it just just what it is and it's because um they haven't been trained how to deal with uh, mental health issues right and so on top of being a black person on top of being a male all of those things are in my opinion and from we can see from statistics um negatives when you're interacting with the police force right yeah so yeah. tell us about the his was he married? Did he have No, he was he was not married. He had a one daughter, biological daughter. She's now nine years old. She just had a birthday December the seventh, so she's nine. She, you know, loved her dad and her dad loved, loved, loved her. So she's academically advanced and um, he just came to one of her academic achievement awards uh, ceremonies back in you know, it was June, mm-hmm. and he kind of just whispered over to me, "He's like, she's perfect, and she." It was like, "Yeah, she is," and um, that's just how he thought about her, right? Mm-hmm. But she loved her dad, and he loved, it. and she was he was very involved in her life. Mm-hmm. Now, there's two other little boys that he um, he also then they also called him dad because he he had relationships with their mom. Mm-hmm. They ended up having, you know, really close relationships with him. Right. Um, it was a six-year-old little boy. His name is Daniel. And four-year-old little boy named Jamari. And they called him dad, too, because right. because they loved him as well. Yeah, he was good with kids. Did he live in D.C.? or No, he actually, his last address was here. Mm-hmm. But he, he loved, loved, loved D.C. Spent a lot of time in D.C., which was, I always would um, talk to him about that because I'm like, you know, you just like this. He's like, yeah, Ma, I love it there. Everything is there. You know, it's like, and the people that I hang around, they accept me. They accept me. Mm-hmm. And so that was his, you know, that was his um, world, DC. What, yeah. the, what kind of work did he do? And I know he so, was supposed to be going to mm-hmm. um, one report I read said that he was on his way to some type of training program. Yeah, the some, um, so others might eat. It had a, a program where they would give you um, like few few weeks of training and then um, get you a job at the end of that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done restaurant work. He used to work at University of Maryland in one of their restaurants there at the student union. He worked for Timbuktu so he works for like mostly restaurant work yeah mm-hmm. yeah so for my son he like you know he liked all of the different kind of rap music and everything oh what was his um, favorite do you know Boos- his favorite Boosie, artist Boozy Boozy or his name is Boozy I forget do you know who that is no not okay. unless you're saying Boozy, Boozy. no See, but I know Boozy different generation yeah yeah I know Bootsy <laughs> right. callers but yeah this is Boozy B-O-O-S-I-E and I forget the last name Yeah.
She say I love Webby from his looks to his ways. The stilettos, the days depend on how the weather looks. Flip flops, slippers just to show off the pedicure. Flip flops depend on how the cheddar looks. She a buy her own, I don't think she'll never look. And a man face stand and wait for him to take care of her. She'd rather go to work and pay the bills on schedule. I N D E P E N D E N T. Do you know what that mean, man? Because he was raised in D.C. at first. Yeah, where, where yeah. Were you so in we born, so born. You said you were uh, like a native, native. Washington. Yeah. yeah, born and raised. I yeah. went to Coolidge Senior High School. Um, I went to Rabot Junior High School. I went to Keene Elementary School. My mother's from Washington D.C. My father's from Washington. So we're like, yeah, Washingtonians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they they were both born. Both my kids were born in D.C. And then um, I got a job in Columbia, Maryland which I, I needed to move closer to Columbia. So that's how we ended up in Prince George's County in Laurel. Right. I moved to Laurel when they were like, I guess Jamal was about nine. Mm-hmm. So we fil- finished elementary school in um, Laurel, um, Maryland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And finished, you know, middle school and high school there. Yeah. And so, like I said, just a normal kid, like to run and play and do stuff that boys like to do. <laughs> get, right. Do not fall down and get cuts and all of that jazz, right? Just like a, just a normal kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that one of the things I really thought about listening, you know, the, from the press conference is that, um, you know, you were very articulate around these issues. And very often when these things happen in our community, the parents aren't really able to articulate to the public mm-hmm. or explain. It's almost like, um, yeah, people aren't often able to explain the situation or their own grief, but yeah. yours came through very much. Mm-hmm. And so um, tell, tell us a little bit about you. You said you're a mental health professional. Yeah. And 
Yeah. So actually being a mental health therapist is my second career. My first career, um, I um, actually went to undergrad for information systems, so software engineer. And then I um, went back to school and um, got my degree for uh, mental health therapy. Where did you go to school? So I went to undergrad, went to University of Maryland, um, University College. Mm-hmm. Then I went to um, actually went to seminary, so I went to Capital Bible Seminary for my master's degree, and I also went to Bowie State University for my postgraduate uh, professional development type mm-hmm. thing. Because um, you have to take all these classes before you're able to sit for a license in Maryland, mm-hmm. and so yeah, so a lot of a lot of schooling. But the thing that I've always been in tune with is the fact that. People of color, and I don't even like to say people of color. I like to say black people, right? Because right. people of color is, just, you know, it could be any people. But black people have always had to be conscious of the fact that we are always under attack in this country, and that didn't just start with me. It didn't start with, you know, my mom has been going on for 400 plus years. So I'm very conscious of that. And I'm very conscious of the fact that when we see, you know, and I've I've had to see over and over other women get on TV, Eric Garner's mother, um, Sean Bell's mother, get on TV and and explain and and, and beg people to to understand their loss when they lose their son. I never thought this would ever happen to, I never thought this would happen to me. But I, I feel like I'm in just an amazing company of these type of women because you got to be strong to do this. But but my point is that we always find ourselves in a position where we have to beg people to um, give us what you, the just United States says that we should get just for being citizens. Right. You know, justice, fairness. That shouldn't have to be. That shouldn't be something that we have to go beg somebody. That's, that should be our right. Well, that's what the Constitution says: mm-hmm. inalienable rights. Mm-hmm. And no, those aren't afforded to us. As a matter of fact, we are always victims of this, these systems that they've put in place. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what I was thinking about when I think about the mothers. It's almost kind of like asking someone to recognize your humanity right almost. exactly and absolutely um, and, and it's just crazy that you we have to do this in in 2019 right it's crazy but it that's just what it is i've always been conscious of that from being a little girl i mean you know growing up in dc you you know you grew up around you know you're nurtured around your village but then you go out into the world and you realize almost instant at least it was instant for me there's something that makes me different that gets me treated different because i look it had to, mm-hmm. you know so where so. was your village yeah oh i grew up in northeast dc mm-hmm. um I'm north way up northwest what they call uptown at first but then we moved over to northeast dc which is now i guess part of uh of uh, capitol hill lincoln park area uh, 13th and d you know, mm-hmm. over in that area, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, not too far from the Lincoln Park area. Yeah. Did, were you able to grow up with like your grandparents, like close by, or was yeah, it, yeah, yeah? I mean, originally, um, we actually lived in a house with my maternal grandfather and grandmother, and then when they passed, we moved to Northeast DC. Yeah. But we always had like extended family around, yeah. or your neighbors were your family for sure. You know, you know, everybody knew you within a three block radius. You know, right. you know, they knew your mother. 
they knew your brothers and sisters. So yeah. that's how I grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I know you're gonna have to, yeah. to uh, go soon. Yeah, but I, can do, I can talk fast I about this kind of stuff because it just—I become so enraged, Esther. It's not even. I, yeah. Yeah. It's just enraged. But when we were talking about drugs, it just reminded me, too, that one of the reports talked about was the police who talked to you talked about uh, marijuana being in Jamal's system or something. Or he a said large... that he said, you know, um, this is the guy who called me unofficially. Right. Right. And name is Detective Shell. And first he was being, he you know, very. Uh, aggressive and arrogant towards me. This and isn't the 3 a.m. call. This is the guy who called me at 3 a.m. He oh. called me another time. Oh. He called me another time. But he told me it was unofficial. So I don't usually bring it up unless somebody tells me because he said it was unofficial because they hadn't got the report yet, right? So he says, well, unofficially, I can tell you that your son ingested three bags of um, drugs. I don't know what they are, but one of them um, um, uh, exploded in his intestine and that's what caused his, him to die. And so it was an accidental overdose. That's what he told me. I said, okay. Because first he's like, well, I, you might not be able to handle the truth. And all this. I was like, look, look, first of all, don't talk to me like that. Secondly, well, I don't blame you for being angry. I said, I do not need your permission to be angry. <laughs> and what you're going to do is whatever you tell me, I'm not going to believe anyway. So you can tell me what you, call, what you called to tell me. And I'm going to follow that up by finding out on my own. Mm-hmm. So that's what he told me that that um that Jamal had ingested like he said three bags of drugs they don't know what kind of drugs and that one of those bags had um you know um ruptured in his intestine that's what the word he used and caused him to um OD instantly and so you know and like I told him I said you know you tell me what you need to tell me y'all have had 60 days to come up with whatever story you want to and that still doesn't tell me when was he arrested what'd you do with oh, him this was two know. months after yes was this was like ago. um right before right after we had the press conference oh it was right after you had the press conference yeah it's around in that time frame he called me and told me this is uh, detective shay was it before the press or conference? was it before maybe it was a week before yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Because he's like, this is Detective Shell. I was the one who called you at 3 o'clock in the morning. I just want to, you know, I should have called you way before now. But this is unofficial because we don't have the report. And he told me that he was even called in because of Jamal being found unresponsive. Because once they take them down to Central Cell Block, they become the custody of um, D.C. Department of Corrections. So he wasn't, you know, so they were... Excuse me. They officially were not no longer responsible for him. It was the D.C. Department of Corrections, who I have not heard from at all, at all. Mm-hmm. You know. So, um, uh, uh, yeah. And so the question was, if this actually did happen, when did it happen? Did right. It, aren't you searched? Aren't you like? And like, so he's know. like the only thing he the only thing he has to do now is find out whether he ingested the um, drugs before or after he was arrested. So he's like, that's all I need to do to complete my investigation. I said, well, what about internal affairs? Because you all claim that you uh, check these inmates every 15 minutes. But we know because they've done they have been sued for another man who was found um, unresponsive. Like, I think I want to say four years ago in his cell where they don't actually do that. No, You know, they say they do, but they don't. I mean. Let's look at what happened up there in New York with Epstein. Those people were supposed to be, he was actually under suicide watch. Those people were up there uh, surfing the internet. 
and have been habitually not doing their job mm-hmm. and probably why they were assigned. But anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other story. They don't do their job. Yeah. They don't. And then they're not, nobody holds them accountable. So, in other words, you know, we, we have two, two or three different issues here because if, I don't know, I don't want to say it sounds so utopian, like if we lived in a different kind of society, if a person has a history with mental health issues mm-hmm. and you're approaching them as a police officer, right? If you suspect, you suspect this person has been selling drugs or mm-hmm. whatever, they may have drugs. So there's mm-hmm. two things there, right? Yeah. So it seems to me that if we lived in a different kind of society, we had a different kind of policing, that person would be approached and handled in a certain way, number one, because of the mental health issues, right? right? Number two, um, they may have drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to be, be their reaction if they don't want to be caught with drugs, right? right? So... That's there's there's a lot of things there. So so what do you want to happen now? What what can happen now? I want to know everything that happened on that day, from the time that you arrested my son, to the time he was put into custody by the D.C. Department of Corrections, to the time that he was pronounced dead. I want to know. I want to know. I want to see the video because D.C. police officers wear body cams. And so when they get out, however, they jump out, whatever they're doing. I want to see that video. (laughs) I want to see the video that they keep at the correctional facility to Mm -hmm. see whether or not they absolutely were checking on my son, whether or not he asked for help and you didn't give it to him. I need to see all of that because Mm -hmm. I don't trust them. I don't believe nothing they say out of their mouths because all they do is they see, they try to find ways to cover up for, for not being respectful and accountable to people who look like me. And so I don't trust them. I don't. And I don't have a reason to trust them. Mm -hmm. They have not done anything to make me want to trust them. Mm -hmm. I should be able to, but I don't. Mm -hmm. So now I have to, you know, I have to do what I I believe is best for me. And nothing I will do will bring my son back. Right? Mm -hmm. But but, but then it becomes bigger to me than just my son. It could be somebody else's son next week and somebody else's son the week after that. So we have to start holding people accountable because if we do not, they think that they can do whatever they want and get away with it. Not this time. No, I'm going to keep using this mouth because I can talk pretty good. I talk a lot, (laughs) but I I will keep using this mouth until I get the justice and some accountability. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm asking for. Mm -hmm. Accountability and, and yeah, and knowledge. Information. Yeah, I want to know. I want to know what happened. Yeah, you know, and that's under the head to me of accountable. You need to be accountable. I'm accountable for my actions and my job. You're accountable for your actions. Why do you think police department, law enforcement, that you don't have to be accountable mm-hmm. for for people's lives? You have people's lives. Right. 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 <laughs> They're not just a number that you assign them. They're people. Well, I want I want to thank you. I've been speaking with Roxanne Johnson, mother of Jamal Bird, and I want to again express you know my deepest thank sympathies you. for thank your you. loss. Thank you. And Roxanne Johnson, mother of Jamal Bird, will have the last word on today's show and on this show for 2019. We thank her again for telling her story and making us remember the human lives and humanity behind the headlines. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks again to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Gerald Horn. The music we played this hour included MC Monte, Rocksteady, and Lil Boosie and Lil Fat Independent. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Don't forget to support our petition campaign on change.org to urge the D.C. Council to hold a public hearing about the actions of the Metropolitan Police Department during this year's siege and takeover of the Venezuela Embassy. Search for and sign the petition titled Hold Public Hearings on MPD Actions at the Venezuelan Embassy. This is our final show for 2019, and we'd like to take the time to shout out our listeners on the two dozen stations around the country that air on the ground, including our home station, WPFW 89.3 in Washington, WRFG Atlanta, WBAI New York City, WKEM Montgomery, Alabama, KODX Seattle, Washington, WXIR Rochester, New York, KSOW College Grove, Oregon, WPPM Philadelphia, PA, phillycam.org, WPRN-FM, the Progressive Radio Network, WEFT 90.1 in Champaign, Illinois, WCPB, Modesta, California, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, WLLP, Palinville, New York, WXOJ, Florence, Massachusetts, WKWRK in Fairbanks, Alaska, WRWK in Richmond, Virginia, and also stations in Corvallis, Oregon, and Workforce Rising Radio. In the coming weeks, we will be airing our annual special of Unheard Voices of Resistance from the past year, and we will return after that with our regular programming. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Happy New Year. Thank you.